We are coming to the fourth part in our series on answering anxiety. I hope this has been a help to you. These texts have been a great help to me over the years. And, uh, and I don't have as many years on me as some have on you, but I'm sure these texts have been a blessing to you as well throughout the years of different trials and stresses and anxieties and how the Lord has ministered to you. I hope they will continue to. Please stand with me if you would, and let's read our text, Matthew 6, verses 24 to 34. Matthew 6, 24 to 34. Let's read this together in unison. Jesus' words are filled with truth. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray together. Father, we come to You as children that are hungry, and we are asking You to feed us through Your Word. Thank You for giving to us Your Son true bread, true drink, the bread of heaven, living water. We thank You that in Christ we, we have righteousness, we have the Spirit, we have life, we have forgiveness, we have redemption, we have hope, peace, and joy. All from Your hand, our good and gracious Father. Father, may we be encouraged by listening and studying and understanding, being mindful and meditative on Jesus' words today. That His arguments would be accompanied to our hearts with spirit and power and conviction. And that we would delight to see You as You are. Father, we ask You through the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures this morning that You would magnify Yourself to us. That You would cause our thoughts of ourselves and earthly things to, to diminish and Your glory and Your grace and Your greatness to be magnified. 
May it be, Father, so that we can bring you glory in, in our daily lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Again, we turn this morning to our study of Matthew 6. This is our second week on Matthew 6, 24-34. We began this before our, our beloved ministry partners came last week. And uh, so we're four, four parts into our series, Answering Anxiety. And what we're learning, the heart, I want to remind you of the heart of what we're learning, and it's this, that the fear of the Lord is what answers and overcomes sinful fears and anxieties. And that kind of seems counterintuitive to replace one fear with another fear, but when you understand the biblical definition of the fear of the Lord, it it makes perfect sense. To fear the Lord is to know Him in His attributes from Scripture and to live in awe of Him so that our anxieties in this life are diminished against the backdrop of the perfections of God and His promises to us as our Heavenly Father. In other words, we're exhorted in Scripture to fear the Lord and fear not any other created thing. We're exhorted to be in awe of the Lord and to be anxious for nothing. Psalm 112 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who what? Fears the Lord. Who greatly delights in His commandments. Then, in verse 7 and 8, here's the result of fearing the Lord, being amazed at God above all else. Here's what he says. He, this man who fears the Lord, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm Trusting in the Lord. Verse 8, his heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. That verse has convicted me and gripped my heart over these last few years. How we dread bad news, right? But the man who fears the Lord learns not to be afraid of bad news. The greatness of his God and the promises and care of his God over him remove that fear Proverbs 2, 1 through 8, give us the heart of the one who seeks to have the fear of the Lord. Listen, the, the Proverbs father is urging his son, my son, if you'll receive my words, treasure up my commandments with you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek for it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Here's the thing. You know what? The people, God's people that will be overcoming their anxieties are really the people who have an insatiable hunger and passion to know God through the Scriptures. And then you'll know God as He is. And you'll fear God as He deserves. And the fear that you have for created things will diminish. Listen to what happens in the family of the one who fears the Lord. The man who fears the Lord. Proverbs 14, 26 and 27. Listen to this. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. And his children will have a safe refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. 
that one may turn away from the snares of death. That's the result of fearing the Lord. That's how we overcome the anxieties that this life would tempt us with. Now, remember that our text this morning deals with a specific anxiety that we've all felt at one time or another. And in this text, Jesus answers our anxieties with with powerful arguments, reasons, in order to be in awe of our Heavenly Father so that we can trust Him without anxiety. The anxiety that Jesus refers to in Matthew 6, 24-34 are those anxieties which refer to sustaining earthly life. My health, my clothes, my food, my housing, my money, maintenance, payments, bills, fees, taxes, so on. The anxiety and fear comes when we realize the great demand required to sustain earthly life and how insufficient our resources often feel. Sometimes our anxieties can be exacerbated by a false expectation about lifestyle that we might accept from our culture. In other words, we try to live beyond our means, and so that can be a source of anxiety. Sometimes our anxieties are exacerbated by the consequences of our unwise decisions that we presently cannot escape. Sometimes our anxiety is exacerbated by unexpected and unwanted circumstances that place even more pressure on our resources. And the question that we need to understand and come to in this text is, how do we respond to that? Every human being experiences some sort of anxiety and temptation to fear. How do we answer it? It's common to man. How do we answer that? When we feel the pinch between sustaining our earthly lives and the resources we have, and we're tempted to be anxious and fearful, what do we do? And that's what we looked at this slide, and we're not going to go through it in detail again this morning. We can, you can look back at the previous sermon. But this slide presents to us a fork in the road. We can eagerly seek after all of the earthly things in an attempt to calm our anxiety and thereby neglect God's will and Christ-likeness in our lives. In other words, we eagerly seek to prioritize earthly things and we neglect to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness in order to make sure we have all of the earthly things that we need or by faith we can trust our Heavenly Father to add to us the earthly things that we need to sustain life and continue to prioritize seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. And that's really the main idea of this whole text. Do not be anxious. Instead, keep seeking first your Father's kingdom and righteousness, trusting Him to provide all that you need. You can see that main idea at the top of your notes in the bulletin. This is what Jesus is exhorting us to. And ultimately, the greatest reason that would impassion the believer's heart for learning to live this way is that if we do, we will trust God and overcome our anxiety and then our lives will reflect His greatness to those around us instead of communicating our fears and anxieties. And as we reflect God's greatness through our trust and our priority of seeking His will and His righteousness first, then others will be drawn to Christ as well. 
That's like what Matthew 5.16 says, just a chapter before this. All, this is all in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The chapter before, he says, if you, seek, if you um, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what does Jesus tell us so that we can willingly make this trust of our Heavenly Father and leave our anxieties with Him? Jesus reasons with us. We, we don't have the ability in ourselves to pursue a life like this. <coughs> Jesus helps us. He, he changes our hearts. And so there's six reasons, and we looked at the first three last week, and we'll look at the, first, at the second three today. Let me just review these first three with you quickly. Why should I trust my Heavenly Father instead of being overwhelmed by anxiety? First, number one, He's a life-giving Father. You remember this. Jesus commands us in verse 25, verse 31 and 34, don't be anxious. And the first argument is that Jesus reminds us we have a life-giving Father. He's arguing here from the greater to the lesser. He says, I tell you, don't be anxious about what you will eat and so on. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That's Jesus' argument to us from the greater to the lesser. He's saying that to create human life requires much more power and resource than to make food. To create the human body requires much more power and resource than to make clothes. And if God created and provided to you the greater life and body, then He can certainly make and supply to you the lesser food and clothes and shelter. And of course, neither are a burden to Him. It's not like one is harder for Him to do than the other. They're both easy for our Heavenly Father. Neither are a burden or a strain on the infinite abilities and inexhaustible resources of our life-giving Father. We just look at Genesis 1 and see how God spoke and created all things. We look at Deuteronomy 8 and how He sustained His people in the wilderness by making sure that their sandals and their, and their clothes never wore out and how He provided water for them out of the rock and manna out of the sky and quail. And they learned to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you have a life-giving Father like this? Of course, if you're His child, you do. So Jesus reminds us, don't be anxious. The second argument Jesus gives to us is that we have a bird-feeding Father. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus points our eyes to nature. He says to take time. Look. Take time to notice the revelation of God's natural creation to learn about His character from nature so that you might trust Him as your Heavenly Father. Look at the birds. What do they teach you about your Father? Birds don't have a process of storage. Birds don't have bank accounts. Birds don't have barns or grocery stores. And yet, God provides for them. The birds are fed by God directly. Psalm 145, 16, He opens His hand and He satisfies the desires of every living creature. This time, the argument is from the lesser to the greater. You are more valuable to God than birds. Why? Because 
You're made in His image to bring Him glory like no other creature. You as an image bearer of God are the pinnacle of His creation. And if you're a child of God, then you are doubly His child. You've been bought by the blood of Christ. You are a son. You are a daughter of the Heavenly Father. Therefore, you are more valuable than birds, just like Jesus says. So if God feeds the birds daily, will He feed you too? Yes, of course, He will if you're His child. So Jesus says, don't be anxious. Instead, seek first your Father's kingdom and righteousness, trusting Him to provide all that you need. Third, just by way of quick review, and then we'll look at the new material for today. Number three, He's the timekeeping Father. A timekeeping father. That's what he says here in verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Can anxiety add any time to the length of my life? In other words, Jesus is saying to us, anxiety does no good. It doesn't make you live longer. It doesn't add one hour to your life. So many people are very anxiously busy about all sorts of things in an effort to literally lengthen life. Yet Jesus is compelling us to face the truth about this. Who is it that determines the exact length of your life? Our Heavenly Father. Your Heavenly Father does that. You will not die one hour sooner or later then He is determined for you. That's the ultimately what Jesus is saying. So don't be anxious. Anxiety doesn't do anything to lengthen that life. This argument reminds us that God is sovereign, the sovereign timekeeper. Remember Psalm 139? Jeremy read for us this morning. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Listen to this. Here's the truth that we need to understand with Jesus' argument. Verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, what? the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I don't know, this sounds like it's referring to to God's book of life. I don't know, something like that where He is sovereignly recording all of time. And here we have our lives perfectly planned. How precious are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Don't be anxious. Seek first your Father's kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Fourth, new new material for this morning. Why should we not be anxious like Jesus says? Why not? Because number four, you have a flower clothing Father. You have a flower clothing Father. Let me read for us again verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, And why are you anxious about clothing And I think it's appropriate to include into that word clothing the shelter of our bodies, right? Paul does that. Is it just the clothes we wear or is it more than that, the shelter over our heads? Jesus says here, consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus begins this argument by asking his audience why they, or we, are anxious about clothing, shelter, covering for our bodies. And remember, when Jesus asks a question, he's not trying to find out information. He's trying to draw out the heart of his audience. Jesus asks this question because he's pressing to us truly to see the absurdity of our anxiety against the glorious backdrop of the ability and love of our Heavenly Father. Why are you anxious about clothing? If this is who your father is, what do fathers do for their children? Do they not clothe them? Again, Jesus is telling us to notice and think about God's creation and what it reveals to us about our Heavenly Father's ability and tender, loving care. Look at wild field flowers. It's amazing when you live out in the country you see so much more of this sort of thing. Every, every, every year the flowers come up all over the field behind us. All different colors and varieties and designs. It's amazing. Those flowers, Jesus is calling the clothing of the field grass. And the flower clothes aren't the result of the anxious labor of the field grass. They don't produce material on the loom. I mean, do you ever see blades of grass pulling out their loom and like, all right, let's get some clothes for this winter or spring or whatever. No, clothes, no sewing machine is involved and they don't go to the store and buy. The flower clothes of the field grass come directly from God as well. God keeps spectacular clothes on the field grass without their help. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. That's Jesus' argument to us. And the clothes of the field grass, he says here, are more delicate, more exquisite, more detailed, more breathtaking, more unique and full of variety than any other clothing on earth. How does Jesus teach that? Verse 29, I tell you, even Solomon. So what is Jesus doing there? He is pointing to the most well-known, most um, admired clothier of the Jewish nation, right? Solomon. If anyone would have had amazing clothes to wear, it would have been he. And Jesus says, I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like the field grass with the flower clothes that I put on them. Second Chronicles eight or Second Chronicles nine one through four. Listen to this. Second Chronicles nine one through four. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions, having a very great retinue and camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him that all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from Solomon that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, 
the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, and their clothing, his cupbearers, and their clothing, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Isn't that interesting? Think about that. My breath was taken away at this. Flower clothes are more spectacular than Solomon's clothes were. That's what Jesus is telling us. And more than that, God keeps spectacular flower clothes on the field grass without their help, even though they are momentary. This is another layer of Jesus' argument to us. I mean, you wouldn't waste your time on something that's going to be burned up in one day, would you? Yet, Jesus, our Heavenly Father, clothes these field grass without their help, even though they're mourning, momentary. Look at verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown in the, the oven. What's he talking about here, right? Morning bloom to evening burn in the bread oven. That's the life of the clothes of field grass. Flowers are the disposable clothing which with God dresses this field grass. Grass, this grass and these flowers would be used by, you know, Middle Eastern first century women. Gather it up, they'd put it in their bread oven to get the fires started so that each day they could have bread to feed their family. I mean, this is a daily thing. Gathered up, burned up. Again, the argument here is from the lesser to the greater. If the Father clothes momentary grass without their help, with the most spectacular of clothes, then Jesus asks, won't he clothe you? Won't he clothe you? Yes, he will. Right? That's, that's what Jesus is saying. Why do we get so anxious then about earthly things like clothes and shelter and so on? We are eternal beings and mean more to God's eternal purposes than field grass, so God will clothe us according to His will to bring Himself glory. These are the arguments Jesus gives us to do away with our anxiety. It doesn't mean we're going to live like culture expects us to live. We'll have our needs met as we seek first His kingdom and righteousness. When we're given to anxieties, these little flowers convict us of our little faith. Listen to what David Martin Lloyd-Jones says about little faith. I just want to read to you this quote. So good. Jesus is speaking to his own. They have faith, and others have no faith at all. So it is spoken of such people only. Our Lord is speaking here about Christian people, people who have only saving faith and tend to stop at that. These are the people about whom He is concerned and His desires that they should be led as a result of listening to Him to a larger and deeper faith. Worry and anxiety being cast down and defeated, being mastered by life and its attendant circumstances are always due in a Christian to lack of faith. We can say of this type of faith in general that it is one which is confined to one sphere of life only. It is faith that is confined solely to the question of 
the salvation of our souls and does not go beyond that. It does not extend to the whole of life and to everything in life. The result is, of course, that in their daily lives they are often defeated. In their ordinary daily lives there is very little difference to be seen between them and the people who are not Christian. Their faith is confined. It is a little faith in that way. Its scope is so curtailed and limited. A little faith is a faith which does not lay hold of all the promises of God. It is interested only in some of them and it concentrates on these. That is little faith. It is faith which is confined in its relationship to the promises. It does not realize that it is meant to be something that should link up with them all and appropriate every one of them. The trouble with many of us Christians is that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but that we do not believe Him. There is no greater fallacy than to regard the gospel of Christ as just something that you think of when you are in church or when you are spending a certain amount of time in meditation. No, it applies to the whole of life. Let us look at it like this. To be of little faith means, first of all, that we are mastered by our circumstances instead of mastering them. End of quote. So again, what do we do about that little faith then? The next time you're anxious, go to this text. Hear the words of Christ and the promises of your Father. Consider Jesus' argument. Then go outside. Do some research. Look at the flowers. Remember these things. Think seriously, prayerfully about Jesus' argument and who God is to you. And don't follow your anxious thoughts. Argue with them instead. Even out loud, argue with them. Tell your anxious thoughts about Jesus' arguments and lead your thoughts to follow the arguments of Jesus and believe His promises to you as His child, as the child of the Father. Jesus gives us such simple illustrations to help us understand and to kill our anxiety. Even children can understand these arguments, right? Bring them to your children. Bring them to your children. And we should remember, remind our children of these things when they're anxious about something. Even while they're young, help them, lead them to begin to turn to the promises of God, the perfections of God when they experience fear and anxiety. Open your scriptures to these kinds of texts. Point to the birds. Remind your children of God's indomitable ability to sustain life. Point to a flower and remind your children of God's inexorable ability to provide. Remind them of His infinite love for all of His children. This argument from Jesus reminds us that God is our providing, sustaining, flower-clothing Father who loves us more than He loves field grass. So we're not to be anxious. Number five this morning. Verses 31 and 32. Therefore, Jesus says, do not be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we drink? What are we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Don't be anxious. Speaking like this, giving vent to your heart like this, why not? Because That's the way the Gentiles behave. Think about this argument with me. First of all, we need to understand what Jesus means by Gentiles. That's important for this. The Israelites referred to people 
as Gentiles who did not know God, did not worship God as the one true God. These are they who did not hear or believe or seek to live by the Scriptures and the law of God. They didn't commit themselves to the covenant family of God. (coughs) The people who did not know God, do not believe the Scriptures, are not part of the covenant family. They were called Gentiles. Instead, they worshipped whatever gods they made for themselves. They lived by whatever rules of life suited their own desires. They associated with people that would help them to fulfill those desires. They didn't know Yahweh. They didn't care about that. That's what's meant by Gentiles. And so Jesus used that terminology that was familiar to his audience. So today as followers of Christ, we do not use ethnic terms like Israelites and Gentiles to talk about the distinction that Jesus is making here. Instead, we'd use something like believer, unbeliever, church, world, Christian, pagan. That's what Jesus is saying. The the pagans seek after all these things like this. The unbeliever does that. And why? Why? Because the unbeliever does not know God. They don't know the Father. They don't know that God is self-existent, eternal, no beginning, no end, no one, uh, no dependent on anything else for His being. They don't know that He's creator, sustainer, self-sufficient, experiencing no personal need, no deficiency, no lack, complete in Himself. They don't know that He is infinite. His attributes are infinite in quality and quantity. They don't know that He is omniscient, all-knowing, everywhere present, all-powerful. They don't know that He is unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. They don't know that He is sovereign over all, providentially orchestrating all things, decreeing all that is, allowing only what fits into His eternal purposes, and preventing anything and everything that does not fit His eternal purposes. The believer doesn't understand that that's who Yahweh, the one true God, is. And so they don't live their lives accordingly. The unbeliever doesn't know relationship with God. They don't understand the holiness of God, the love of God, the mercy and grace of God, the goodness and justice and compassion and faithfulness of God. God as his or her father through salvation. They don't know God as their father through salvation in Jesus Christ. God is not their father in that way. And so they worship a God of their own ideas and desires. They worship, uh, they, they worship their, own, their own selves. They love their sin. They, they don't know and love Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And that's ultimately why they don't know who God is or know Him as Father. Their ignorance is willful. And because of that willful ignorance of both God's revelation Himself and the relationship that they can have with Him through Christ, the unbeliever then experiences certain and necessary anxieties in earthly life. They don't know this Father that we have. And therefore, the unbeliever does not trust God as a Father. The unbeliever thinks that the gathering of food and drink and clothes, the necessities of life, it's all up to him. 
The unbeliever would think that he is entirely responsible for his own existence and survival on this earth. The unbeliever thinks that he must hoard all he can for himself, otherwise he'll starve. I mean, we've seen that over the last couple of years, right? Where'd the toilet paper go? The unbeliever thinks that he must put earthly self-preservation as his number one priority. That's a result of not knowing God. The unbeliever is anxious about his earthly well-being. Anxiety is a primary problem in our world, is it not? All you have to do is ask the pharmaceutical companies, right? Anxiety is consuming. Notice verse 31 in contrast to verse 33. Jesus says, don't be anxious, saying, there's a panic about this verse. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things. Verse 33 is so different from that. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The unbeliever neglects things of greater eternal importance to pursue his earthly well-being and survival. This is why the unbeliever does not seek after the kingdom of God and His righteousness as a priority. This is why the unbeliever tends to neglect the spiritual life and nurturing of his own soul before God and the souls of those that God has entrusted to His care. The souls of His fellow man. It's not a concern to Him. Earthly life is the concern. And why does He neglect those things? To anxiously seek after His own earthly, temporal, sensual satisfaction and success and security and sustenance. The unbelievers consumed with being secure and satisfied the here and now, this earthly life, this temporal place, it's captivated his focus and his affections. The unbeliever is not mindful of the priority of his eternal life and where he will exist forever. And so Jesus said that because the unbeliever does not know God. They don't trust God. They live like this because they don't know God. Now, Bring Jesus' argument home to our own hearts. Jesus is saying to us, don't be anxious, child of God, Christian believer. Don't be anxious like this. Why not? Because, for, that's what for means, right? (coughs) Because to be anxious like this is to think and live like an unbeliever who does not know God. And we can do that sometimes. It's to fall into that. Dear child of God, if you are anxious about what you are going to eat and drink and wear in the weeks and months ahead, if you're anxious about acquiring the necessities of this earthly life, if you're living, we could call it the squirrel syndrome, right? You're just constantly anxious about focus of gathering up and storing all you can of this world's goods in order to try to gain a feeling of security and satisfaction in your temporal, earthly existence, then you're thinking inconsistently with being a child of God. That's what Jesus is saying. And it's likely that you're neglecting to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. In the lives of those you are entrusted in your own life, because you think that your temporal earthly life is the most important aspect of your existence. 
Dear ones, what does the Bible say life is? It is a what? It's a vapor. It appears for a little time and it's gone. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It's not the most important thing about you. And providing for it is not to be the priority of your life. Isn't that so counterintuitive? Eternal life with God is the most important thing about you. Seeking first His will and His likeness is to be your priority even before the sustaining of earthly life. Are you thinking that your earthly survival is all up to you? It's not, child of God. It's He is your all-knowing, sustaining, heavenly Father. And God has commanded us to labor, yes, and to provide for our families and to protect our families, but who is the one that's actually enabling every second of our labor? Who is the one that's causing our work to be productive at all? Who is the one who's protecting us from a myriad of of, of destructive influences? Who is the one who is actually providing a return for our work? Who is the one who promises to provide out of his glorious riches in Christ as we seek first his kingdom and righteousness? It's God himself, this God that the Bible describes in great glory. Please don't mistake what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that working for earthly well-being or sustaining our families is a sin. He's not even saying that it's wrong to plan and prepare for the future. He's saying that anxiously pursuing our earthly well-being to the, to the demotion and exclusion of seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness, that's a sin against God and dishonoring to our Heavenly Father. And really what that is, like we said, when we say God isn't the provider I am, God isn't the protector I am, God won't be to me who he says he will be through Christ, eternal life with God isn't the most important thing about me, this life is, I can't seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it's up to me, it's my first priority to secure earthly well-being. Really what Jesus is saying there in verse 24 is that's to serve an earthly master instead of our heavenly master. And we will have an anxious life. And that's why Jesus is arguing with us here. If you, have you been anxious like that? Go to Christ in prayer. Go into prayer with your sense of poverty with your sorrow over sin. Cast all of it again on, on your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's your righteousness. He's your atonement. He is willing to rescue you from your anxiety. Ask Him. Seek. Knock. It'll be given to you. There's another point I have to show you here in verse 32. You need to see this. Jesus says, don't be anxious, not just because it's to think and behave like an unbeliever. But look, you have a heavenly Father. He brings this home to bear on our hearts. He is your heavenly Father. You know what? He didn't used to be, did he? You didn't always have this heavenly Father. 
You and I were born into this world like everyone else, sinners by nature, rebels in our desires, enemies of God. God wasn't our Heavenly Father. What was He to us? A holy judge. Think of it, the almighty creator, infinite sustainer, omniscient, eternal one, omnipresent, sovereign. He was our holy, good, just judge. That's terrifying. And I don't want that. God and all of His holy attributes was righteously at enmity with us in our willful, scornful, arrogant rebellion against Him. We were dead, the Bible tells us, in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2 says. But what happened? What happened? God in His mercy rescued us from our depravity. God in His grace spiritually resurrected us and gave us eternal life. He received us into His family. He chose us to be His. He planned to change us and make us holy, to adopt us as His children redeemed us, forgave us, accepted us. How did he do that? Through the life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. When did he do that? The moment we heard the gospel, repented of our sin and self-righteousness and trusted in Christ alone for salvation. That moment, he gave the Holy Spirit to live in us. That moment, he became our heavenly father. I mean, from one moment to the next, he was our judge at enmity with us and became our Father who is entirely for us. The God that we have been talking about, having stood against us, is now for us because of what Christ did. Remember Romans 8? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? In all these things, what? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of Christ. Love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why Jesus is saying, don't be anxious. You're a child of the Father inseparably because of the work of Christ. If God is for you, who can be against you? Even if you lose this temporary earthly existence, what have you lost? what you couldn't hold on to anyway. What have you gained? Everything promised to you in Christ. For us to live as Christ, to die as gain. Why? Because God is your heavenly Father. You're His adopted child. So then, why do we get anxious? Because we forget these eternal realities. We've got to remind ourselves of these things. And you know what? This, this heavenly Father is not only our Father, but He knows Everything. He knows that you need them all. All. All the things that you need to sustain earthly life. He knows it all. And He delights in giving it to you to meet your needs. He knows what you need and what you don't need. He knows your needs better than you do, actually. 
He knows your needs before you do. He knows the needs of your entire being intimately and perfectly. He knows your needs, spiritual and physical. He knows every need of your entire existence on earth, past, present, future. And in eternity, He has already planned perfectly for the meeting of all those needs. He knows you. He knows all your needs. He's your Father. The final reason this morning before we pray. Do not be anxious. Instead, seek first your Father's kingdom and righteousness, trusting Him to provide all that you need. Last reason, number six. Future hold, our future holding Father. It's the last verse. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Each day has its own sufficient amount of trouble, right? You woke up this morning, and most likely when you woke up, you had a roof over your head, right? Did you have food to eat? Three meals, probably. You got it planned? It's in the fridge, right? It's there. God has provided already. Did you have some clothes to put on? Everybody's got clothes on here, right? And some water to drink. And for the, and for the, the last 24 hours, you have gone through an hour-by-hour hour rhythm of recognizing needs and satisfying needs, right? You feel a need, you take care of it. And you have what you need to take care of those needs. I mean, that's, that's the way life is. That's a valid description of each day. And that's what Jesus means when He says each day has a sufficient amount of trouble. There's needs in each day, troubles, difficulties. Each day we'll seek to meet those needs. Some days feel like there are way more intense needs, right, than other days. And yet the Lord has brought you through all of them up to this point. Has He not? You're here. But each day has a sufficient amount of trouble And each day, there is a sufficient amount of grace from God, our Father, to take care of that trouble. Jesus, throughout the last five arguments, has clearly told us that we don't need to be anxious about meeting the needs of today. All the troubles of today. Because God is our Heavenly Father. He has planned for us to live on this earth. He will add to us on a daily basis those things that will meet our earthly needs for as long as He has planned for us to live on this earth. And that is no strain for our Heavenly Father. We know this. So for today, do you feel at rest for today? Think about that for a minute. I'm, just think about today. Do you feel at peace with making it through the rest of this day? You have what you need. Now, so you begin to overcome the anxieties of today because of who your Father is to you and what He's already provided in advance even. Now, don't go being anxious about tomorrow, right? When you get there, it'll be today and God will take care of it according to His will. It does absolutely nothing to trust God for today than be filled with anxiety about tomorrow as if that was different is if that was harder for God to do to meet our needs tomorrow than He has today. Again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't make plans for the future and strive to be good stewards of our God-given resources. Jesus is telling us 
Don't be anxious or worried about the needs of tomorrow. Why? Because the Father is already there in tomorrow to take care of the needs for the troubles that are there. Troubles for today are met with today's sufficient grace. Tomorrow's troubles will be met with sufficient grace from God as well. Just as your Heavenly Father met today's needs, He'll meet tomorrow's needs. Listen to this. God, how do we know that? Right? How do we really know that? God is eternal and unchanging. That's how we know that. That means that He holds yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and every other day in time as you would hold a watch in your hand. He knows it all. He sees it all. And he's in complete control of it all. He's present everywhere. Not just present everywhere in space, but present everywhere in time. He inhabits eternity. He's the creator of time. He governs time perfectly. He is involved in every moment of our lives intimately. You see, God does not live in one moment at a time. From one moment to the next like we do. Forgetting the past and wondering what tomorrow will be. That's not the way God lives. Do you realize that? He inhabits eternity and all of time exists in Him. He's the all-knowing, all-powerful Father who has promised us that He'll meet our needs today in the days of the future. He is able to do so because He is already in the future with His infinite knowledge and His infinite power to meet the needs of days that we have yet to experience. And that's why you can trust His promises. He's already in the future when those promises are fulfilled. Do you realize that? And He is there with all of His perfections working for our good and His glory. He's our future-holding Father. Leave the future in His care. Don't be anxious. Instead, seek first your Father's kingdom and righteousness, trusting Him to provide all that you need. So in closing this morning, what do you feel anxious about today? What burdens your heart? When do you feel anxious like that? How are you going to answer it? The next time you feel your anxiety, take your Bible, open it up to this text, ask the Spirit of God to impress on your heart, the arguments of Jesus, your Savior. Look at your Father. Look at your Father through the Scripture. Look at your Father through nature. Hear His promises. Be in awe of Him. Fear Him. And let your anxieties be overcome. And as we go to prayer, I just want to ask you this. Is He your Father? I've already told you the Gospel in the sermon earlier. All those who come to God have been drawn by Him as their Father. As many as received Christ, to them He gives the right to become children of God. To those who believe in His name, not because they have chosen such or by the will of man or by the will of flesh, because they've been born of God. John 1, 12 and 13. You can be a child of God. He can birth you into His family. If that's something you are interested in, please talk with me today. Please don't leave. If you want to become a child of God, you can be by the grace of Christ. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Our Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us into this text today. Your timing is perfect for us. And we pray that you would teach us to take these arguments of Christ and remember them and, and learn to fear you more than we fear earthly things. And thereby to reflect your greatness and glory. Father, save those this morning that may not yet be your children. Please draw them. May they see the glory of Christ, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.